Good morning, everybody. My name is Keith, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, it most assuredly is a pleasure being here with you, because you all seem to have so much fun. And I love fun. I love excitement, you know, wearing stupid hats and crabs on your head and all those things. You know? And uh, I certainly want to thank uh, Rule 62 for inviting me and my wife, Peggy, and Patty, and Hank. We're part of this program. Uh, I particularly am not a speaker because it says in the big book that I read, one drunk talking to another drunk. It doesn't say one drunk. I am not special, believe me, and I don't ever want to be special. And that's one of the things that uh, I have learned in the 28 years I've been around here is that uh, I am not special. And all my life I thought I was special, or I didn't really think I was special. I thought I had to be special in order for you to like me because I didn't like me. And, you know, you hear that a lot in AA. We, we alcoholics need to be something. You know, we need perfect. You know? When we're perfect and when we're accepted, we feel good. And when we're not, and usually we're not, you know, in our head, in our judge and jury up there, uh, we're just not accepted because uh, I wasn't because I was always different. But it was nice to be on the... Um, Council yesterday about uh, relationships. I heard three or four people talking about relationships this morning, you know. Seems to be a big thing in our life, right? <laughs> and uh, Hank, the first wife who passed away, uh, and Clancy and his wife, and Sally, my wife and I, uh, about to go, we, uh, we all were married. 25 years in the same year. And so Hank had the bright idea to take us all out to this this uh, show, you know. It was uh, it was really a nice evening, you know, and it was nice. We had 75 years of marriage there, you know. So I guess we were qualified yesterday, Hank, you know, <laughs> to say something about trying to get along with her. <laughs> I have been sober since uh, July 20th. 1967, which was uh, last week, or this week, I guess, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I have 28 years of sobriety, which uh, now doesn't uh, seem to be too outstanding, but boy, when I was one and two, it was sure outstanding, you know. And uh, my wife and I have been married to each other for 46 and a half years today, you know. So... Uh, She did something right. <laughs> we alcoholics, as you heard Jim's story Friday night, we don't do good <laughs> in trying to make our wives happy. <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't like to be here. <laughs> we don't like to be home all the time. <laughs> we like to be out there having fun and excitement and, you know, God, staying home and being a husband and being a father and, you know, God, what a dull life, you know just a dull life. And uh, I always had to have excitement in my life. I had excitement in life. I felt good. And I felt like maybe there's a, maybe I someday will fit in, you know, if I can create enough excitement and be important. God, so important to be important, to be somebody. 
just to be somebody. I'm uh, from the old school or the new school or whatever you want to call it that uh, I believe that I was an alcoholic from the get-go. When my uncle, who was the doctor and brought me in this world and slapped me on the rear and I let out that first alcoholic cry, which I really think it was, I think I, I've been an alcoholic since uh, birth. I really do. And the reason that I do is because I look back over my life before I ever had a drink of alcohol, and I look back over it, and uh, uh, I acted like an alcoholic, you know. And so that proves to me that, that drinking is really not my problem. You know, trying to live in a social environment with my peers, you know, comfortably is my problem. And alcohol made it okay. Alcohol made me feel like I fit in. And God, what a wonderful thing for us alcoholics who have a very, very difficult time fitting into the world today. I remember in kindergarten, and my, my teacher came up to me and she said, Keithy. And I looked up at her in kindergarten and I said, Mrs. Fullerton, my name is Keith. I mean, I wanted to be a man in kindergarten. I don't want to be called Keithy, a little sissy name like Keithy, you know. Jesus, you know. Bobby didn't care. Dickie didn't care. Johnny didn't care. But Keithy cared because I was the alcoholic, you know. And she said, well, Keithy, God, I wanted to hit her, you know. She says, you've been chosen to recite a poem at the Easter pageant. Ooh. I looked up at Mrs. Fullerton and I said, Stan, now how many times have we said, how many times have I said, well, to my enemy, to my friends, to my peers, you don't, you just don't understand. I'm not like that. My case is different, you know. Jesus, how many times have we said that? Hundreds and hundreds. But I remember saying, don't understand. You know, and what I was going to say is I can't do that because I, found out later that I think the reason I said that is because I knew I couldn't get up in front of all those kids in grammar school, maybe 30, 40, I don't know, and be perfect. I knew I couldn't stand up there and recite that poem to perfection. And she said, well, you're going to do it, and she walked away. So the second alcoholic thing I did in kindergarten, I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced because I couldn't get up there and be embarrassed. I couldn't get up there and make a fool of myself. How many times have we all felt that way? Well, I have hundreds of times since then. The day happened, they called me to the podium, you know, and boy, I ripped it off. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are, and didn't miss a beat. And you know what I got is, hey, for Keithy, hey, you know, I've got approval, my God, approval. God, we need approval. We need approval more than any human beings in the whole world. That's why it's so important when the newcomer comes, tell them everything is going to be, you know, because they need it so desperately. I needed it so desperately. We all need approval. But every walk of life, we need approval. In our jobs, you know, in our relationships, in our inability to function, you know, as a, as a normal, quote, unquote, if you heard my wife yesterday, was a gauge on the, on the, what was it, honey? <laughs> Gage on the um, on the dryer, I guess it was, you know. And her sponsor said she'll never have it, and I don't think I'll ever have it. And I don't think any of us in this room will ever have it if we're alcoholic or Al-Anon. 
you know, because normal is for them out there, not for us in here. Not for me, anyway. Anyway, um, so I got that approval, and man, it was so wonderful that the rest of my existence on this earth till I was 38 years old when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I overachieved for approval, I underachieved for approval, I lied for approval, I stole things for approval, and how many times did you do this? Buy everybody a drink in the house, you know, and write a hot check for it, you know. Normal people don't do that, you know, but by God, I did. I did it to the tune that I was convicted of writing felony checks and damn near went to prison. That's what I did it. I needed that approval so bad that I damn near went to prison over it. Came that close to going to prison, writing checks because by the house, you know, normal people don't do that, that I know of. Anyway, I, um, I had a father that was a pop. He was a fabulous man. And uh, we had a gold mine in a tungsten field. Buck Owens and his buckaroos are famous for Bakersfield. And Frank Gifford, he was famous for Bakersfield. Anyway, and we used to go up and work these mines. And you know, I was a kid, six, seven, eight years old. And we used to fish those streams, trout fish. And uh, he used to, one time he told me, he said, stand on the side of the stream where your shadow doesn't fall in the, in the creek. And the trout won't know you there. And that, you know, and I did that and I got my limit. Boy, just like that. God, I thought, what a... Brilliant man, you know. And um, I was uh, struggling through grammar school, and I became tetherball championship champion of the school because I had to be, you know. And I did practice more than anybody, and became better tetherball than anybody in the school, you know. And I um, I marched the Armistice Day Parade in 1938 with my dad. He was in the First World War, and uh, God, I felt good. I had my clean. all my peers. Along the way, and hey, there's Keithy, you know, and God, it wasn't so bad, and you know, it was good. And then about uh, three o'clock, four o'clock that afternoon, two men equilibrium, and my mother, oh my God, he's drunk, you know, because she's Swedish, like Hank, and me, and she's Swedish, and and she just all of her brothers and sisters were drunks, <laughs> and she just thought that maybe he was drunk. But my dad never did drink that much. He drank a half a beer, you know, and played the guitar and sang the drunk. Anyway, uh, they laid him on the bed, and he uh, went into a coma in my, my grandmother's bed with my sister, and my dad was in the hospital, and he didn't. I was going to Christian Science Sunday School at that, and I had all my little gold stars for never missing Sunday school, you know, so I guess I was a pretty good little kid, you know. And uh, I was saying my prayers, you know, and uh, part of the prayers were the Christian Science prayer, and, you know, so he can take me up fishing and hunting and do the things that we did. And, I got bad news for you kids. Your dad has just passed away. Seeing I said, God, you dirty son. I said, I'll never, ever, ever believe in you again. Ever again. He destroyed me. Hadn't I just prayed to you, you know? And now, you, you take him away from me. And it was a horrible thing in my life. A horrible thing in my life. Because I love my dad. So, And when guys, you know, have trouble with their fathers, you know, love him. Take care of him. Be something to him. You know, I didn't have a dad to do that. There's a lot of people that don't have a dad or a mother to do that, you know. And if you have one, Jesus, allow him to be a part of your life, part of your alcoholic life, your, your sobriety in life. Anyway, um, 
I decided uh, after the funeral and everything that I was going to become the man of the house because I had a mother and a father, a mother and a sister, and I, you know, no men in the house, so I'm the only man, you know, an alcoholic man, you know, and I decided to get a job. And I didn't get one job, I got three jobs. No, that's alcoholic, you know, and I was going to take that first check home to mom to help her because she worked in a laundry making 15 bucks a week. We weren't very, you know, we were pretty poor, and you know, we're hard. It was in, right after the Depression, and, and the whole country was in trouble. I was going to take that check to mom to help pay for the food and the rent and this and that. And I got that check, and I thought, well, I better take it to Ferris's Market. You know, the little market you hang out at, you know, and with all your peers, you know, and let him cash it to make me feel good. And Mr. Ferris, will you cash my check? He says, yes, Keith, and he cashed that check. God, I felt like a million dollars. And then I turned around, and all my girlfriends and boyfriends are out there, you know, hanging around. You know, I said, Mr. Ferris, I'm going to call my friends in, and I'm going to buy them whatever they want. And he looked at me, he says, don't do that, kid. You know, take your money home and put it in the bank or give it to your mom. No, no, I want to buy them. And he's like, come on in, you know, and I bought them ice cream and soda pops, you know, and God, I felt good. God, I felt good. I hadn't had a drink yet, folks. But what I did is after it was all over, the excitement of the situation was over, I started home. And the big G set in. Guilt. God, we alcoholics are guilty. We're guilty tenfold compared to them out there. Oh, my God, what am I going to tell my mother? I told her I was going to bring this check over. What am I going to do? You know what I did? I conjured up the greatest lie in the world, you know. <laughs> And man, I went home and I told my mom this lie and she accepted it and I thought, man, this is wonderful. And from that moment till this moment, lying gets you out of things. I found that out. Lying just gets you out of things and makes it okay. The only problem is it only makes it okay temporarily. And you gotta face the issue sooner or later. And that's what alcohol did for me. Alcohol made it okay. While I was drinking, while I was under the influence, it made it okay. Yet, when you wore off and you became sober, that's when life became. And so, what you have to do, if you're an alcoholic, like we are, you have to drink again to make it okay. And it gets okay. And it just goes on and on. We destroy ourselves somehow. Insanity, jail, death, you know, liver explodes, you know, whatever, you know. We cannot stop drinking because we have to feel of excitement, that feeling of... I became 13. Remember when you were 13? Jack, Patty's going like that, you know. And it's true, you know, 13 is a horrible age. Because I was tall and I was skinny. My arms were about that big around like olive oil or Popeye, you know. God, I wanted an arm like Joe Lewis so bad so I could whip you. You know, if, I, if you gave me a bad time, I wanted to dominate you, you know. And I, and I wanted to be big and strong. And I was tall and skinny. And God, I was ugly. And I had white hair stuck straight up. They called me Whitey and they called me Kisser because I like to kiss the girls. That ain't too bad, you know. <coughs> and... Uh, I had acne on my face so bad that it was just, when I looked at myself in the mirror, I was damn right ugly. I was ugly. And I was funny looking. 
And God, I wanted to be 18. Instantly, I wanted to be 18. I wanted to be somebody. I used to put those T-shirts on and roll my T-shirt up to make my arm look big. Remember that? God, you know. My Uncle Pete, who was a doctor and a nice man, he was an uncle. He was Italian. Because two of my mother's aunts, there was 11 kids in her family, all Swedes and all drunks, as I said, Two of my aunts were married into an Italian family that had nine brothers, and we used to have these big parties. Christmas Eve, you know, God came. Every 8 o'clock Christmas Eve, Santa Claus came every year and brought me the present that I rode away to the North Pole for. I mean, it was really neat. I believed in Santa Claus until I was 21, you know. We alcoholics fantasize, you know, when it's good, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm at that party, that New Year's Eve party, and I'm this tall skinny, ugly, acne, pock face, you know, human being that I absolutely hated myself. And my cousins, the girls, were going to try to get me to dance. Man, you couldn't get me out there to dance. I couldn't even get near a girl. Let's get out there and dance, for Christ's sake. And God, you know, up to this point in my life, I loved athletics. I loved all the sports. I just loved them. I, I, I felt good about sports because I was pretty good at it and I became important when you're good at something. And um, I was never going to drink and I was never going to smoke. I made that, made my mind up to that probably when I was eight or six or seven or eight. But this night, I, oh, I feel, and everybody, there's a big bar there and there's like 70 people there, all relatives, happened every Christmas Eve. And I went in and I stole a bottle of VO out of that damn bar and I went back in the closet. You know, and I closed the door of the closet of this big old house, and I took the top of that damn bottle off, and I said, should I do it? Should I do it? You know, I'm not going to drink. You know, and boom, I hit a big old swig, and I tell you, it hit my mouth, and it burned. You know, alcohol burns if you take a big swig. And we do everything big, right? And it hit my mouth, and and I coughed, and I spit it up, and I said, my God, how can they like this stuff? Until... What happened to every alcoholic in the world? It hit down in that lower cavity, and it trickles up, your, and it makes you feel that warm, warm glow. Remember that warm? So I took another drink, and it went down kind of okay, but still didn't taste good. I took another drink, and about the sixth or seventh swig, man, it was wonderful. And from that point, age 13 to age 38, I drank every possible chance I could drink in every possible day. I was not a periodic drinker. I was a drinker because drinking became a part of my life because drinking made me okay. Drinking made me feel good. Drinking made me fit in. Drinking was marvelous. It was wonderful. It was was the epitome of life, for Christ's sakes, you know? And I um, went out there and I learned a jitterbug that night. And my wife and I still jitterbug pretty good. And I learned to walk. And I learned to, my face became as smooth as a baby's rear end, you know. My hair became Clark Gables, you know. I mean, I became Joe Lewis. I became those things, you know. I, Jesus, I, you know, I was fantasizing, but I didn't think I was. And my God, just think if we didn't have, how it couldn't have functioned in the world. It was a marvelous thing for me. I guarantee you that. 
Because I started out in life, I became part of the human race at age 13. And I was part of the human race until about four years before I quit drinking. And uh, alcohol was for me. But I also, you know, had that desire, that driving desire to become important, to become somebody. Because every time I was important, and every time I was important, every time I got my picture in the paper for catching a pass for a touchdown or whatever, tackling somebody or, you know, in basketball. I lettered in four sports in high school in four years. I was a good athlete, a damn good athlete. But you know something? I drank every, almost every day of those four years. I had a buddy named Gene Garnier, and his dad and mom owned a restaurant in Vegas called Joso's, a beautiful, fancy French restaurant. And they made their own wine, and he used to bring a gallon of wine, put it in the locker at the, at, in, in the uh, gym, and he gave me his uh, combination because he knew I liked to drink wine, you know? And I could go in there and have a swig anytime I wanted. Yeah. I became student body president, and I'll never forget the first day I had to be in front of the, all the kids, you know, the assembly, you know, and, and take over. Man, I hit that gym real fast. And I just gargle, 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 you know, Jesus, because it made it okay. And it gave me a false sense of being somebody, I guess. But it was me. I mean, drinking was fun with all my peers and just getting drunk out of my mind. Uncle Pete had a garage and it was plumb full of liquor because it was during the Second World War and he thought that they, he was going to be able to buy booze, you know, and he put on big parties and everything. So I jimmied the window off the back and I was taking it from the back and he was taking it from the front. And when he got hop halfway, there was nothing left, you know, because I used to take this booze and we'd go to the river, a case of whiskey, two or three cases of beer, a case of wine, you know. And we used to do crazy things, and we'd run after those little bunnies that had the tails on them. We'd catch them with our hands, you know. And then the most exciting thing we did is we shot with the 22 cigarettes out of our mouths, our buddies' mouths, you know. Jesus, you know. Think back and God Almighty, you know. Drunk we did that, you know. Anyway, I uh, got a scholarship to Stanford University. I mean, what a thing, you know, from a little punk kid from Bakersfield that... Uh, that had no money, you know, my mom was still, she worked for Lockheed and she was a riveter and she riveted uh, uh, flying fortresses and she was doing you know, better than she was, you know, before, but we still were not wealthy, we, you know, we weren't even halfway wealthy, we were, we were kind of poor. And I thought it was kind of neat. So I went up there and uh, they sent me up there in the spring to take an exam and to meet the coach and all the things. God, I got up there, and those kids had $100 bills in their pocket. They had convertibles with white tops. And, you know, their dads were doctors and lawyers, and they had $100 bills in their pocket. And, man, you know, I don't have a dad, you know, and I have nothing, you know. And I, I just felt so miserable because I knew I would never fit in. And the stupid thing I did was got out there in the Bayshore Highway, and I hitchhiked back to Bakersfield, and I had a ticket to go home. But I had to run. I had to run, run, run. We alcoholics love to run. We run away from things that are not comfortable, and we take ourselves into a place where it's still not comfortable. But we don't know that when we're running, you know. And I ran away from there and went home, and I went to Bakersfield College, which was neat. Because uh, I used to go over to East Bakersfield and girl watch. I know Joe was a girl watcher. Right, Joe? <laughs> And I was girl watching one day over there in my mother's car, and this beautiful little girl come walking out of the groom. I'd never seen her before. 
And I used to go there all the time because it was East Bakersfield High School where I used to be the big shot, you know. And uh, she'd come walking out. And I asked Tommy, who's that? And he said, that's Sally P. She was pretty well endowed. She was bobbing along pretty good, you know. And, uh, man, my eyes popped out. And I says, I'm going to marry her. I said that. I'm going to marry her. The first time I set eyes on that woman, I said, I'm going to marry her. She was 16. I was 18. We had, you know, did, we didn't know what end was up, for crying out loud. But I had this scholarship to San Jose State now. And uh, Bakersfield College was... Uh, was a great entrance into higher education for me. And we had a football team that was unbelievably good. Frank Gifford was on that team. Sid Hall went to the Bears. I ended up with the 49ers. And we had some good ball players on that team. We beat one team 96 to 6, and we gave them the six points. <laughs> we beat another team 105 to nothing, and we didn't give them nothing. Because we didn't like them, you know. We were good. We were good. And you know, when you're good, you feel good. You feel important. The excitement of winning, winning, winning is what we all kind of search for and seek and strive for, for crying out loud. It was good. And I married this little girl on January 23rd, 1949, and off to San Jose. And I had to go up there because I got all D's and F's at Bakersfield College. I was there to play football, basketball, baseball, and track, you know. And I had to go up there and get a B average in order to get my scholarship, and I did, you know. When we alcoholics make up our mind to do something, we do it, right? We don't mess around. And I got my B average, and I got my scholarship, and I played, uh, I played five years of college football. I don't know if anybody else ever did that, but I did. You know? I'm an alcoholic. We do things different, I guess. You know? And it was uh, neat. I mean, we had two little babies. Boom, boom. Beautiful little girl. and Beautiful. And uh, no money. Struggling, you know struggling through college. I had my scholarship, you know, which paid me pretty good, you know, but not enough to, you know, paid enough for one person, but not for a family, you know, four, for kind of, uh, and I remember I used to have a dollar in my pocket, and I had a bicycle, I didn't even have a car. I used to drive, to, ride to school on a bike, and ride to the stadium on a bike, and there was a place called Tenth and Keys in San Jose, and that was a famous hangout for all the guys and gals, you know. I'd get on that bicycle, and I'd say, well, I know the babies need milk or maybe a block of ice for the ice box. We didn't have the, but gee, I think I'll maybe go have one beer at Tenth and Keys. Then I'd say, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I got to go home and I got to, you know, I got to buy that milk for the babies, you know. And I'd go a little further, you know, and this jury took over up here and made the decision, which that's one thing we alcoholics can't do. We can't allow our head to make a decision for us because they're wrong. Not usually. Every time it's wrong. And I went to Tenth of Keys every single time, every Friday afternoon. And I'd buy a beer, and then we'd start rolling dice. And 43 beers later, you know, I'd ride my bicycle drunk home, you know. And I'd go in, and then she'd say, well, where's the milk, you know. Well, you know, I had to make an uh, errand. And she'd believe me for a while, I guess. You know? And the poor babies didn't get their money. And, you know, that's what alcoholism does to us. It takes away the ability to function and do the right thing. Did me. Anyway, I graduated from college. I, I was all coast. I was honorable mention All-American. I was pretty good. And I was drafted by the 49ers. And I thought, God, if I could just make this football team, I can buy that little white house with a white picket fence for her that she's talking about all the time and get an education for those kids, you know, and God, I can be somebody. 
And so all my life I did extra, extra everything. You know, I always did extra everything if I wanted to be something or do something, to be good at something and extra sit up. I went up there a week early. We were in uh, Menlo Junior College in those days, and um, we were at, a, at this junior college and had these barracks, and that's where we practiced before the season started. And uh, I signed my contract, and I thought, man, this is it. If I just wonderful. And went up there a week early, and a couple of the guys, the quarterbacks, went up, and I was a center and a linebacker, and I'm, you know, center of the ball and center of the ball, just hour after hour after hour, just on our own. And then the season started, and uh, we, the quarterbacks and the centers used to get together and would center the ball on, and on the cadence of a metronome, one of those, you'd center the ball exactly at the right time. Worked out, I did extra sit-ups, I did into camp, and we couldn't go anyplace. We couldn't even make a phone call the first two weeks because they wanted us to think, eat, sleep, you know, football, which was what you're supposed to do. That's what you got paid for. And um, about six days into, into practice, one of the little halfbacks named Joe, great little halfback, hey, Carp, how would you like a beer? my God almighty, how the hell do you get a beer, you know? <laughs> can't even get out of here. For I can't even call my wife, you know? He says, we go down, he says, put some pillows in your bed, and we go down to Redwood City, and we go in this bar. We do it every year, and we hoist a few and have a good time, you know? And man, what a great idea that was, you know? And I uh, put the pillows in my bed and went the, down to the end of the barracks, and we got in our car and went down to the bar in uh, Redwood City, and Hugh McElhaney and, you know, Y.A. Tittle and all these pros, you know, and I thought I was a pro, you know, but I'm sitting up there, I'm hoisting beers. You know, and it was a sad thing because uh, most of the guys, we had about, I think there was eight or ten of us there, and um, all of them had a few beers and had a few laughs and talked a little bit, and they went down. And Joe and I sat there until two nights with the bar closed, drank 20, 30 beers, you know, got drunker in hell, you know. And the next day I hit that field at 5.30 in the morning. There was a guy named Bruno Banducci who was from Stanford, and he was seven years all-pro guard for the 49ers. And he hit me on the first play in scrimmage and drove me up in the damn air, and my back and my head hit the turf, and it was like a Liberty Bell went off in there, you know. Jesus Christ! You know, I was so hungover. I hadn't been drinking, you know, and I drank all those beers. And God Almighty! And you know what I said? I said the thing that we have said so many times that I have said and I know you have said I'll never have another drink as long as I live I promise you God I'll never have another drink I just can't do that I want to make this football team you know in the nick because we alcoholics just can't not do that we just can't not do that and um, I left the 49ers because uh, I was feeling so uncomfortable and I, I knew I wasn't making it and the reason I knew I wasn't making it is because I was drinking too much, you know, drinking away too much. So the next year, I ended up with the Edmonton Eskimos. They doubled my contract. They said, if you leave the 49ers and come to our team, we'll double your contract. And I went to the Edmonton Eskimos. And the next year, they traded me to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers because they didn't want me on their team anymore because I drank too much. I drank too much. And I ended up with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And the next year, they traded me to the Toronto Argonauts because they didn't want me on their team because I drank too much. They used to have six or seven coolers of beer after the game, and the minute you walked in with your uniform on them, the, the trainer handed you a bottle of beer. And that Canadian beer is pretty good, you know. And I would sit there and drink 20, 30, 40 bottles of beer before I took my uniform off. 
And there was a couple other guys that did the same thing, you know. But the rest of the guys, you know, they'd have a few beers and, you know, they'd go about their business and go home, you know. But not me, you know. And it just, I drank my way right out of the 49ers, right into Toronto. I played for five different football teams for five different years and never made it. You know. I never made it. I was on a plane with uh, Daryl Strawberry the other day, and, you know, he's had his problems, you know, with the... Uh, his name's in the paper a lot, so I'm not breaking his anonymity. And uh, I sat there with him, and I told him my story, you know, about how what I did when, you know. And he kind of felt, you know, I, I mean, I felt a little sincerity there, you know, but not much, you know. I, <laughs> I'm sure he'll do it again. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> but anyway, I started out in life, and uh, I became a, I graduated as a school teacher. And I was going to be a coach all my life. And I, so I became a salesman. And uh, it's been good to me. You know, you know, if you're good at something and, you know, you can sell, I mean, it's, it's, a, good, uh, it's a good thing to do. Anyway, ah, that's what I mean. My mouth is dry. I started out in life. And I sent her home from Canada. And I became, I was going to make a million dollars. And I went into the mausoleum business. You know, what a business to go into, you know. We built a beautiful hillside mausoleum in Orangeville, Ontario, because you couldn't bury the people in the wintertime. The ground was too hard, you know. So they'd put them in these places until spring came, and then they'd put them, put them in the ground, or you know. So we built this beautiful mausoleum, and, man, we was going out, we were selling these crypts, you know, and we were making it. The only problem is on the weekends we'd fly to New York, we'd fly here, we'd spend our money, we'd drink it all away. And then they said, well, hey, uh, when are you going to pay your bills? And we didn't have any money. And they ran us out of that town on a rail. I mean, they, they, you know, they have blue laws up there. They weren't too happy about this thing, situation. I sold the company for a dollar. And, and the guy that bought it made a million dollars. Went home, went in the car business, Disneyland for drunks. You work a half a day and you drink a half a day. Man, it's a great job for a drunk, you know. And uh, went through bankruptcy and... Bought a little house and lost it, and you know, this life never did take place. Life doesn't take place for us. Moved to Los Angeles. I told Sally, I said, We're going to move to Los Angeles, the milk and honey's down there, and we're going to make it. You know, another, another move, you know, geographic. And down to LA, and we found this beautiful little house in Woodland Hills with a white picket fence, you know, and I thought, Ah, oh, you know, I'm going to make it this time. She's got her little house, and the kids will go to school, and, you know, everything's going to be okay. And uh, about uh, pounds, fat, bloat, ugliness. I'd been convicted of writing felony checks, done stupid things. She'd always, you know, volunteer me to do things for the school, you know. And I would always do them, but I'd always do them drunk. And I remember I made this super guy, and he, he, the kids would have to hit them, this thing with a, it was on a fulcrum, and it would hit this symbol that I put up there. It was a strong man, you know, and I, but I needed a piece of mallet that would be good for the weight of the six-year-old, sixth-grade kid, you know. So I went out to this Canoga Park, and there was, you everything, and I found this limb, and I got on my 
pickup and I put my ladder in my pickup and I got up into this tree in my mind, you know, I've been working on this project all day and you, when you work on a project, you got to drink. And I started sawing this limb and I'm just sawing it and singing, you know, and I, oh, I found my limb, you know, and all of a sudden it started to go and I'm on the outside of the limb. And I fall 40 feet down into this cavern and I mean, I, it knocked me out cold, blood all over me when I woke up about five in the morning when the sun came up, you know, and I looked up and I thought, oh, what is wrong? Where am I? You know? <laughs> Did really stupid things like that. And in uh, one morning, uh, my wife, uh, she said to me, she said, I uh, called the National Council on Alcoholism and uh, I made an appointment for, for you because you've got a drinking problem. Drinking problem? Jesus, I don't have a drinking problem. You know, I have to drink. You know, it's part of my life. I should get up, you know. But this morning I had a horrible hangover, and uh, I said, okay. Because she used to have a habit. I don't know if your spouse or your husband did this when he was drunk, but she used to have a habit of saying, you got to back on like a jellyfish, you know. Or, you know, where's your willpower, you know. And just horrible things. You're an alcoholic, and oh, God, I want to kill her, you know. And I says to her, I says, honey, if you just don't yell and scream, I'll go with you. And that's how I got, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went down there, and this guy, Frank Huddleston, talked to me for one hour. He gave me nine glasses of water, and I don't remember a thing he said, because I didn't want to be there. But he gave her three phone numbers, and the two of them she exhausted, but the other one was, uh, number was Clancy Emerson. And uh, on July 20th, on July 19th, I drove to Bakersfield to have Basque food. They have great Basque restaurants in Bakersfield with a bottle of wine, you know, right in front of you. And I drove up there. I don't know how I got there or how I got back. I really don't. I had a pickup that was a year and a half old and didn't have a straight fender in it. I never hit anything, but they hit me, you know. Both bumpers were wired up, and I had a dog named Duke, you know, who was drinking with me. <laughs> Loved beer and popcorn. Loved it, you know. Anyway, um, I got home that next morning, and... Uh, she had taken this number, this number of Clancy. She didn't know who to Clancy, you know. And she had taken it, and we had one of those, I was in the swimming pool business then, and we identify equipment to make these numbers, you know, peel them off and put them on things. I got home, and I woke up in the morning, she had gotten a job. She was trying to get enough money to divorce me, really. Uh, I woke up, and I was so hungover. I'd been drinking for three weeks, and couldn't get drunk, and couldn't get sober, you know, that horrible limbo drinking. I, Woke up and I rolled out of bed and I couldn't even get on. I couldn't stand up. I was so hungry and so fat and so ugly. And I crawled on my hands and knees into the porcelain altar. Remember that? Man, you'd get your head up against. And with a hangover, it made you feel so good, you know. And I lifted that wooden seat up. And I'm going, you know, and I'm giving it my best, and I open my eyes, and on the porcelain was 392636. <laughs> I don't know how you got to A&A, but I got here through a toilet bowl, man. I didn't have to go to a treatment house or a halfway house or a recovery house. The toilet bowl got me here because I thought, oh, my God, maybe I better call A&A, you know. And I kind of got myself whipped up in shape, and I went in, and 
I knew that that number was in the hall in the hall phone because she had it all over the house. She had it in the mirror in the kitchen, the mirror in the bathroom, mirror in the... She had it everywhere, you know. And I looked at it for nine months and just hated it. Anyway, I picked up the phone and I dialed it and uh, Clancy answered the phone. I said, is this the number I'm supposed to call if I have a drinking problem? And he says, well, tell me, do you have a drinking problem? I said, I'm a drinking problem. My wife hates me and my kids hate me and I'm drunk and I just can't get, I can't stay sober. And he says, hey, you got a drinking problem, kid. <laughs> then the arrogance of the alcoholic said in, I said, what do you mean I got a drinking problem, you know? Where do you live? And he says, well, I live in Venice. And I said, I live in Woodland Hills. You don't know me. And I said, how do you know I got a drinking problem? He says, believe me, kid, you got a drinking problem. And I thought he hung up on me. He didn't, but I just thought he did, because I didn't hear the next thing he said. And I got out there, and I got in my pickup, and my lovely Al-Anon wife, who hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, had taken all the beer cans out of the sacks, because I was drinking 20 to 40 half quarts of beer and a fifth every day. And she took those beer cans, and some of them still had a little beer in them, took them out, and dumped them on the seat, pyramided them, so when I opened the door, they all fell out and hit me. <laughs> I'm kicking those damn cans, you know, and I get in that seat and go, squish! Oh, I hated her. Hated her. Why did I make that call, you know? And I went down, I bought one half quart of beer. Never bought one half quart of beer in my life. Bought two. Because I wasn't going to drink any more than two the last four years. And always drank 40, 30. And I used to sit up on Mulholland and have those two beers between my legs and stuck on that beer, you know, wonder what happened to me, you know, Jesus, ain't I had a college education, I got a beautiful wife, I got beautiful kids, I had 61 jobs before I got here, you know, don't laugh, now, it's, you got to be pretty good to get 61 jobs, <laughs> you know, I said, my buddy Frank Gifford, you know, there he is, you know, man of the world, you know, and he did it, what happened to me? And you, know, you know what I figured out with this head? I figured out I'm never going to make it. I'm one of these guys that will never, ever, ever be successful. And I might as well just accept it and go ahead and drink and do what I can do. And that's what I, you know, this, is, this judge and jury made that decision for me. But anyway, um, I went down, I bought one half a quart of beer and a pack of Salem cigarettes because I was smoking three to four packs of cigarettes a day. And I took that cigarette, put it in my mouth and lit it, and I got in this truck, squishing around, you know, and I started out this driveway and down this beautiful street, Dumet Street, pepper trees, just a gorgeous street. And I'm driving real slow, and I just take that beer, you know, and I mean, I down it, you know, just all the way down, put it down, took another drag off that cigarette, and the smoke went down the wrong pipe, and I started to vomit. And when I vomited, you know, throwing up and coughing, I just sprayed went all over the windshield, and I cannot see where I'm going. You know what I did? I turned the windshield wipers on. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And I stopped the truck, and I remember getting my hand up there and wiping the vomit off the damn thing with my arm. I had it all over me, and I go home. And then I remember Clancy said, hey, kid, I'm shaving. i got to go to work. Because it was five minutes to nine in the morning. It was about ten minutes to nine when I called him, and it was five minutes to nine when I had that last beer. I'll never forget it. And he said, uh, I'll call you later. And they didn't hear that when they wanted that beer. 
And he did call. Twelve-step call. Took me to the first meeting. Took me to the first five meetings. You know, I don't know. I don't think we do that today, you know. Do we take the people to their first five or six meetings? I don't, I don't see it much because they come out of recovery houses and they come out of this and they come out of Betty Ford centers, you know. And, and you know, I, I'd, I'd like to get it back to where we, you know, make the original 12-step call and get vomited on or, you know, get slopped on or whatever, you know. Because, by God, it sure helps us. We sure stay sober. I used to stay sober. I'd never get 2 o'clock in the morning and get this call. And the guy had been in and out, in and out. He said, you talk to him. I'm down to Sambo's. You know, and I went down to Sambo's, put my clothes on and didn't want to go. You know, and I went down there and get there and I sit down in the seat and he's sitting over here and he vomits all over me. He just sprayed it all over like I did the windshield, you know. And I said, oh my God, what am I doing here, you know. But I stayed sober. He didn't, but I did. And that's the answer, you know. That's what we got to do. Anyway, I uh, started out in Alcoholics Anonymous and I have not had a drink, and I never did take drugs, so I can't tell you that. But I never had another drink after that beer that morning at 5 minutes to 9, July 20th. And i got to tell you why, because <clears throat> I really believe that I know why I have stayed sober all these years. I have stayed sober all these years because I got involved, because I got active, because I became a person that made commitments and kept their commitments. I was not much of a bookman. Really wasn't. Still I'm not today. Don't get me wrong. I've read it and you know many times. In fact I was reading it today. But I'm not too much of a bookman. I'm an action man. And I believe that that's what keeps us sober more than anything in the world. One drunk talking to another drunk. Remember Joe Leith, Wino Joe? I'm sure some of you have heard why he's he's, he died four or five years ago, but he used to say at his talk every time, and I like to say this every time I talk, he'd say, them that don't go to meetings don't find out what happens to them that don't go to meetings. You know, and Jesus, think about that. That's too true. You go to, you know, this group right here, if we come back next year, half of us won't be here. I don't know where they'll be. A lot of them will be drunk. Some of them will be dead. Some of them will be in the same asylum. Some will be in another meeting. Some of them will quit AA, you know. But the people that are active, the Tonys and the Joes and the, you know, the people, that, I don't know all the people on the committee, but those people are the people that are going to stay sober. Action is the magic word. It says so. I don't know if you've uh, read the, the 12 concepts, but the fourth concept, which is the third legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous, is the 12 concepts. The fourth concept says, participation is the key to harmony. Harmony. That's what I want in my life. I want harmony. I want to feel good. I want to be accepted. I want you to love me. And I want to love you. Dr. Bob, the two most important words are love and service. Service. Action. You know? Be a part of. If you're having a problem out there and life isn't too good, get active and I guarantee it'll go away. Absolutely guarantee you'll go away. Active and Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't have to believe in God when you come here, because I didn't. I told Clancy, I said, I'm never going to believe in God. And he says, that's all right, go to meetings. <laughs> go to meetings. Be a part of. Come to the yard. We have, you know, a yard. Clancy had this play softball and volleyball every Saturday, you know. And uh, just, you know, participation. Being a part of. 
Couldn't cuss in the yard if you cuss, you had to pay. And that paid for the coffee. <laughs> you know? uh, couldn't wear a beard in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the yard, you know, or a mustache, you know. And that was just the rule, you know, that he figured that if somebody would cut their mustache and beard that they've had all their life, they'll take direction. And it makes sense. So that's one of the things of the Pacific group, you know. Other groups don't have to do that, but that's our group, you know. And it works. We have 1,300 people every Wednesday night in, in, in Brentwood, you know. And so it works, you know. If it works, don't fix it, you know. And that's uh, been a part of my, my AA life, is involvement. I uh, became um, chairman of the um, Tehachapi group. We used to go to the prison. Took 30, 40 people to the prison. Our group was the first one that ever allowed women into maximum security. You know, because we were, you know, we were carrying the message. We were doing something. You know, I became uh, chairman of the Southern California Convention. It was a big convention because I was doing something. I was active, you know, but I stayed sober. Anyway, my second, about 18, 19 months into the program, I hated you. I hated the speakers. My chair made my back hurt. I didn't want to be there. And I was going to meetings. And I was sponsoring people. I was doing the things you're supposed to do in AA. But man, I just wanted to run. And I remember Clancy gave me a dime when I first got sober, and he stuck it in my wallet way down in here. And he says, hey, kid, if you ever want to run, remember that dime's there and give me a call. In those days, you could make a call for a dime. <laughs> and uh, I remember that stupid dime, you know, that, well, I'll call him, you know. So I called him up, and he says, uh, I said, I'm going to, I got a job in Saudi Arabia making $10 million, and I'm going to go, and I'm gonna hate you, and I hate AA. And, and he says, uh, well, wait a minute. He says, why don't you come down and have one cup of coffee? And I said, okay. I went down. If you said two, I may not have gone. I don't know. I went down and had one cup of coffee with him. And the only thing he said to me, he says, see that door? And I said, yeah. He said, I want you to go out that door. And he says, I want you to take the third step. And I looked at it and said, Clancy, I told you I was never going to take the third step. You know, I don't believe in God. God let me down. I told you the story. He says, kid, it's time to take the third step. Now get the hell out. And don't let the door hit you in the rear as you go. You know. And I started out and I turned around and I said, wait a minute. You're my sponsor. Tell me how to take it because I don't know how to take it. He says, I can't tell you how. He says, that's one step that you can't. You got to have the desire. You got to have the, the willingness to try to take it. He says, "Now get the hell out." And I got out and got in my truck, beat up truck, with my dog Duke, which was sober. He was sober with me. So help me God, right, honey? <laughs> he was sober with me. And uh, I'm driving down the freeway. And uh, well, how do you take the third step when you don't want to take the third step? You don't know how to take the third step. You know? And it came out this way: Why don't you try to accept? the seemingly bad things that happen to you as well as the good things that happen to you as necessary for your growth, you big dumb Swede. And I thought about that, and I said it over and over all day long. And I went home that night, and I made a commitment to put it in the form of a prayer and to say it for three weeks, see what happened. Test the waters, right? And uh, I said, Dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad things as well as the good things. Amen. I said, I'll say it every night and every morning for about three weeks, see what happens. Two weeks later, I'm in a meeting and I have a knife jab me in the heart and I'm having a heart attack. 
I pass out. And I wake up, I'm in the ambulance, and they're rushing me to the hospital, and I'm dying. Now that's seemingly bad. <laughs> and I said that dumb prayer. Please help me accept the seemingly bad thing. God, what am I saying that for? You know, and I'd pass out, and I'd wake up, and a sweat was pouring off me, and I got to the hospital, and four days later I get out of the hospital, and it said on the medical report, obesity and irritable bowels, period. A little gas escaped underneath my rib cage, you know, and thought I was having a heart attack, you know. So that prayer worked. Another week went by, and my daughter, who was absolutely gorgeous, Kim was 19 years old and had long blonde, uh, blonde hair and beautiful figure and really a gorgeous girl. And uh, she came to Dad, uh, Sally and I, and she says, Mom, Dad, I'm going to move out and I'm going to move in with Joe. Now, Joe was a known doper, sitting at the kitchen table with a hat on, with those dingleberries hanging down, and a, and a hog motorcycle out front. And I went totally insane, folks. I went insane in, in Alcoholics Anonymous which you can do. And I took Joe by the back of the head and the seat of the pants and I threw him through the plate glass window. Could have killed him. Could have killed myself. And he got on that motorcycle and he split, you know. And then I went back in and I counseled my daughter. Two things that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is you can't become important and you can't force your will on another human being. And I took her and I screamed and I yelled and I spanked her. I took her to my knees. She was 19 years old. I slapped her in the face. I went totally insane. You can't do this to your mother. You can't do this to me. And yell and scream and holler and everything. And the next morning she moved out. Yeah. She moved in with Joe. And I went to Clancy. I said, what do I do about this? I want to kill this kid. I said, I want to really kill him. I'm not saying that. I really want to kill him. And I did. I want to kill him. He says, right about it. Write about it. What the hell good is that, you know? He says, write about it. And I wrote eight pages. And I took, took it to her and handed it to her. And I said, Kim, we're available if you need us, but we can't help you. So I walked away, because that's what I was told to say. And I walked away, and uh, God, what a million pounds off my shoulders, you know? And uh, two weeks later, I get a call in the morning, about 5.30 in the morning. And they said, uh, this is the St. John's Hospital, and we think we have your daughter here, and she's in intensive care, and would you please come as soon as possible? And we rushed over there, and I called Clancy, and he was there in five minutes. That's what sponsors are for. He was there in five minutes. And we met the doctor, and the doctor said, Mr. and Mrs. Carpenter, and we introduced him, Clancy is our, my sponsor, and he said, your daughter has had a tremendously severe blow to the head. She was in a little sports car that she owned, and this Joe was driving it, and he flipped it, trying to pass the car in the Panga Canyon on a dope run. They had no identification, you know, on the dope run. And uh, she ended up in this hospital, and she had 365 stitches right across her whole face. And her face was kind of her fortune, because she was uh, in the movie industry. And she was... Ugly, you know, ugly. And the blow to her head was so severe. They, had, they operated on her seven times as a Jane Doe during the evening because they didn't know who she was. But somebody copped out finally, and that's how they finally found out who she was. Anyway, um, the doctor said, Mr. and Ms. Carpenter, your daughter is intensely care, and she probably will not live. And he said, uh, 
The only thing I suggest is you go to the chapel we provide in this hospital and pray to the God of your understanding. And I went to that little chapel with my wife and with my sponsor and got on my knees for the first time in my life. And I said the only prayer I know how to say. And I'm sure Sally said her prayer. And I'm sure St. Clancy said his prayer. And I said, dear God, as I understand it, Please help me to accept this seemingly bad thing is necessary for my growth and necessary for my daughter's growth. Amen. I didn't know any other prayer. I didn't know God too well. You know? And three weeks later, she came out of intensive care. She lived. And then she came out of the hospital three or four months later. But this Joe tried to sneak in one time, and I caught him in the back, and uh, he was trying to sneak in. We had a restraining order against him because he was still using dope and selling dope and everything. And um, I got, grabbed him around the neck, and honest to God, I started to choke him to death. You know, because I was still so angry, so hateful. You know. And I was choking him to death, and this big security guard gra grabbed me and jerked me off, and Joe ran. Two weeks later, they found Joe in a cave above Burbank, California, with his hands tied behind his back and a bullet in the back of his head. I didn't have to kill him anymore, you know. His disease killed him. His disease kills a lot of us. Disease damn near killed my daughter. The disease kills us. We don't kill each other. You know, the disease kills us. And that little gal came out of intensive care, and for 17 years she drank and used. Tried to commit suicide two or three times. Bought a, she couldn't buy a gun because she had to wait two weeks, the law, you know, to buy a pistol. She bought a rifle, and she put it in her belly, and she pulled the trigger. And the bullet went in here and came out over here, and I got this call, and I raced to UCLA Medical. And I raced in, and I said, Doctor, you have my daughter. She committed suicide. How is she? And... He said, oh, she's all right. And he started laughing. I, he's not laughing, but smiling. What are you smiling for? My daughter's here. He says, hey, she gained so much weight. When she shot herself, the bullet went in here and went over there and just went through the fatty tissue and didn't hurt her. You know? God's way of being anonymous. Fat. For 17 years, she tried to uh, destroy herself with booze and drugs, accidents, running away, going to Big Sur, trying to find the guru, you know, doing all these things. And, you know, we went to meetings. Clancy says, go to meetings, sit halfway behind the first, you know, month or two, and don't talk about it. Don't tell people about it. And just go to AA and listen to the speakers and don't talk about it. God, that's good advice good advice when you have a tragedy in your life. The more you talk about it, the worse it is. You know? Anyway, for 17 years, she did this. And we went about our life and our business and our AA and our Al-Anon. I have one more day of AA and she has of Al-Anon and I'll never let her forget it. She's got 28 years, less one day. <laughs> anyway, uh, we did a thing called Sober Sailors for seven years and we rented these big boats and had speakers from all over the country, and the whole boat was all AA and Al-Anon. And geez, we had marvelous times, you know. They asked me to do the first ever uh, marathon for the uh, World Convention in 1980 in New Orleans, and God, we had fun doing that. It was just, you know, it was being active, being a part of. Keeps you sober, and kept your mind away from 
things that, like a daughter that's still using and drinking. Anyway, uh, she moved, she got married, and she moved to uh, Pony, Montana. Population, 80 people. And she found sobriety. You know. I said, my God, she's here in AA, the capital of the world, sobriety, you know, a Pacific group, and all. Why couldn't she find it here, you know? But we find it when we find it, you know. She's got nine years of sobriety, you know. And she's just, uh, she tries to run the whole state of Montana AA, you know. Kind of takes after her dad, I think, you know. <clears throat> and I have a son, Keith, who um, I'm in business with today, and we manufacture wood-burning ovens, and we're just really successful and just having a marvelous time. You know, being successful and doing something you want to do, you know. And Keith is one of these perfect kids. He's normal. He shines his shoes, you know. He writes checks and balances his checkbook, you know. We were talking about that last night, were we? <laughs> yeah. He owns 40 acres of land paid for. A home paid for, you know. He's just a normal kid, but he's a good kid. And he and I are in business. We're having a ball being in business together with your son. You know, it's just neat. And we're successful. Then we got Kyle. Kyle quit school when he was 13 to become an entrepreneur selling cocaine. And, uh, you know, that was when he was 13, and he's 38, and uh, I think he's got three months of sobriety. Yeah. So, <laughs> is that good or bad? I don't know. Because <laughs> he keeps doing it, you know, keeps, I don't know. He'll find it when he finds it. We'll find it when we find it. And um, I came home one day, and my house was shot up with bullets. And I ran in the house to ask Sally what happened. And she says, well, Kyle forgot to pay his cocaine bill. And I thought, oh, well, that's all right, you know. <laughs> and that's the kind of kid he's been. But, you know, some, he's kind of the one we love the most. You know, isn't that the truth, you know? The ones that screw up the most, the ones you love the most. I don't know. Not the most, but, I don't know, special, I guess. And um, my life uh, for 28 years has uh, been awfully good. And yet I had some rough times, you know. Life is like, uh, in, before sobriety, I think it's, you know, the big mountain and the deep valley, you know. It gets good and then it goes tremendously bad and good and tremendously bad. My life today is, you know, like the little ripple, you know. I still have seen many bad days. And I still have seen many bad things happen to me. Yet, you know, I think the most important thing that I've learned is acceptance. I try every day of my life, and I've done this for the last eight, nine years, I think, to accept whatever happens to me is necessary for my growth. And you know what? I think that's acceptance, I think, is God. I really believe that. Because I tell you something, my life's pretty damn good. And I'm pretty much in love with that woman. And those kids are shaping up. And my sponsor's shaped up. And my connection with the world is shaped up. Although, there are seemingly bad things that happen. On June 7th of last year, I don't know how long I've even talked. How long have I talked? Am I, am I through? Huh? I'm all right? Okay. Huh? On June 7th of last year, I ended up at the University of California, San Francisco Hospital. And about January of that year, 
I was uh, seeing double. I was using, losing my equilibrium, but just short spurts. And uh, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina one time, driving down the freeway. And I all of a sudden saw two freeways. So I had to stop. And I went into McDonald's, and there was two arches, you know. <laughs> there was two cups of coffee. There was two uh, attendants, you know. And God, and I went out and sat in my car, and it didn't go away. And I had to get to an, to an airplane to fly to Florida. And uh, I got in that car, and I saw two highways all the way to... to uh, I think I was, I forget where I was going, Roanoke or something. I was going someplace to catch an airplane. And uh, it went away. <clears throat> and I was Jekyll Island with Clancy uh, at an AA conference. And, and I, we had a buffet dinner. And uh, I got my buffet and I started back to my table. And my toe hit a little thing like that because my equilibrium just wasn't right. And then I just, I couldn't catch myself. I went and hit my head on the t this table with four people sitting there. And they all flew. The food flew. I mean, what an embarrassing thing, you know. It was terrible. <clears throat> but anyway, I got home, and uh, one night I woke up at 3 in the morning, and my whole body was paralyzed. I couldn't move. I fell out of bed. I was just laying there like this, and I was urinating all over the floor. I had no control of anything in my body. You know, and I said, you know, when Sally woke up, and she said, what's wrong? What are you doing? You know, and I couldn't talk. But it went away in about... I don't know, a minute and a half, two minutes. It, well, and I was okay, and I went into the bathroom and splashed some water on my face. Anyway, I went to my neurologist and told them that, and they sent me up to UCSF, and uh, they examined me. And they came into my room, and my room was overlooking Keysar, the old Keysar Stadium where we had played football with the 49ers. It was kind of neat. And uh, they said, Mr. Carpenter, uh, we've got some uh, bad news for you. And we got some good news for you. And I said, well, what's the bad news? And he said, well, you got two weeks to live. Well, that's seemingly bad, right? <laughs> and I says, you have, I have what, you know? Because I had no idea of what was wrong with me. Because it would come and it would go and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't serious. I never had any real bad pain or anything. And they said, yeah, he says, you, you need an operation on your vertebral arteries going into the stem of your brain. They're not feeding the blood to the brain. And uh, one has never been connected from birth. And the other one, I always thought I was screwy, you know, and that's probably why. <laughs> and the other one is collapsed 95% and we need to operate. And I said, well, you know, that's you know, great. And I called Sally and she was there, I think, and, and uh, Clancy and made the decision for the operation. But they said... If we operate, we've only operated, we've only performed this operation 12 times. And 20% uh, of them have not made it. You know? That's seemingly bad. You know something? I accepted it. Honest to God. It, it didn't even, there was not even a flicker in my brain of not accepting it. Because I had practiced that. Dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad as well as the good things as necessary in my growth. I practiced that since I was 18 months sober. That's my third step. That's my introduction to God. That's God working in my life. When I didn't even want it to work in my life. Acceptance is God's way of being anonymous. And I accepted that in... She accepted it. Clancy said, give it a go. 
Chuck Nesbitt, a friend of mine, was up there with me, and he said, go for it, you know. And I went into that operation the next morning at 6 o'clock, and six hours later I came out, and the next day they fed me pizza because it was my natal birthday. The four doctors came in and said, hey, it was successful, have some pizza, because they knew I was in the pizza oven business. You know? So i got to tell you something, folks. If you're having a bad time, which we all do, and you're having a hard time accepting something in your life, and you're fighting it, God, don't fight it. Fight it makes it worse. Fighting things make it worse. You can't fight God. God knows what He's doing. He knows that uh, He must put some seemingly bad things in our life from time to time, I really think, in order for us to shape up. In order for us to be calm. In order for us to not try to force our will on another human being, even though it's your daughter, your mother, your dad, or your son, or whatever. He knows best. And I tell you something, my life has been awfully good. And I think that uh, if I have a message, the message is acceptance and action and commitment. Acceptance, action, and commitment. Because if you do those things, your life's going to be good. I guarantee you, you will be able to weather the storms, whether it's a little storm or a large storm, by accepting the seemingly bad thing. Because you know what happens when you accept the seemingly bad things in your life? It's part of your story. You get to share it with another human being for crying out loud. And then this thing, what this thing's all about? One drunk talking to another drunk. That's what this thing's all about. Carrying the message. Twelve-step calls. Becoming a part of something that at first we didn't want to become a part of. God, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love being here. I love being anywhere today. But especially with a bunch of drunks. You, know? you are my people. I love Peggy. And I love Jack, Jackie. Patty. Your name is Patty. George. <laughs> And Hank, you know, he and I grew up together. I saw him come into Alcoholics Anonymous. Linda is a sweetheart. And, you know, Peg and Dick, I mean, I've known them for many years. And But it's just, I don't know, being around alcoholics is being like being around your loved one that you get that electricity from. When you touch somebody you love, if, you know, you get that electricity you know. Alcoholics are like that to me. I can't be around anybody else. I still don't like those normies out there. I don't understand them. I don't understand them. I don't ever want to understand them. What I want to do is I want to understand you. I want you and I to talk together. And I want to accept you and accept life and accept the seemingly bad things that happen, as well as the good things. Sometimes the good things are hard to accept. And I want to accept the seemingly bad as well as the good things that are necessary for my growth. If I do that, I may see you again, because I do love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have to do three Al and I.
And you were gone. Why did you go?